0: Check out Heritage Network.org slash fifteen to donate and enter to win today. That's Heritage Network.org slash fifteen to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. Started up and we ain't gonna stop off. Howdy y'all, welcome to Wheels Off. This is a bit of a different kind of episode. Because we are all in our homes doing our best to stop the spread of the coronavirus. And I am in my office in New York's Hudson Valley, and you are in your home, hopefully. Um, I'm lucky because I get to work with a couple of fantastic producers on the show. Kirsten Cluthy and Nick Raffini have been helping me for a year and a half to produce Wheels Off, and they're both really great. And Nick um, hosts a couple of podcasts of his own, and he has agreed to be the interviewer on this episode of Wheels Off, and I will be submitted to the Wheels Off treatment and be the guest on this episode. I hope none of you think that this is too narcissistic or too navel-gazing. This is an invention born, as so many of them are, out of necessity. Uh, Moving forward, I will probably be figuring out a way to interview people from afar, which I've never had to do before. but. I think after having recorded this episode with Nick, I think we'll be able to make this work. So guys, buckle up. I'm your guest on this Wheels Off. Thanks so much for joining me.
2: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Wheels Off. This is Nick Ruffini, and I produce this podcast in partnership with Rhett. And we thought that it would be interesting to turn the tables a bit and get Rhett on the other side of the mic and being the interviewee and not the interviewer. So uh so Rhett, welcome to your show.
1: Wait <laughs> is so nice to be on Wheels Off. I've been listening to the program and really enjoying it. Good you, work, Nick. I bet you've probably listened to every episode, haven't you? <laughs> There are episodes, I hate to admit, that I think I only lived through as the interviewer and haven't listened to, but I think I've listened to almost all of them. I I like to listen to them before I go back and record the intros, just because um there's always something in there that i want to explain or hopefully not apologize for but at least you know maybe clarify a little bit like at the end of the Tignataro episode it cuts off very quickly because i was starting to cry because she had done something really sweet for a friend of mine who died and i wanted to bring it up but then i didn't and then i'm like crying and then i hit the stop button and i'm like well shit i wish i had just kept recording right so, <laughs> you know it's yeah so I've listened to most of them and and thank goodness they've they've turned out really pretty well.
2: Yeah I think they uh yeah they've all been great. And and it's interesting there's always uh like there always tends to be like these themes that that run through them but there's always the one thing that's always the same is like these great amazing stories that come out of it or or great advice and while you're listening to it there's all these little nuggets of wisdom in there that you can pull out and and use for yourself which I'm sure everyone appreciates so um Sweet. so let's I want to set the stage a little bit so you are you're at your home in New York and we're all sort of sitting uh you know sitting in quarantine and and trying to stay productive
1: right Yeah yeah I I'm so grateful in the midst of all this that I have a home office in the basement of my home in New York's Hudson Valley and it's a really rainy windy day um the the last week I've had my in-laws have moved in because we had a death in the family, and um, my my wife's little sister passed away unexpectedly. And so my in-laws moved from North Carolina to New York and have moved in with us until they take possession of an apartment, which fortunately we have selected and applied for and gotten accepted to, and they will not be living with me forever. As much as I love them, the house becomes very small, very fast. Sure, sure.
2: So, obviously, you're not touring right now. Uh, no one is touring, unfortunately. Uh, so, what project are you working on right now uh, that that uh, you're really excited about and how does that light you up?
1: Well, um, I'm so glad that we're doing this right now because I was afraid that Wheels Off wasn't going to be able to continue – Because so much of what I love about Wheels Off is sitting down like on Tignataro's bedroom floor or on Rachel Yamagata's front porch. You know, I love being able to be in front of another person, next to another person, you know, within touching distance of some other human being in in a space that's meaningful to them. And so I thought that Wheels Off might be a uh, casualty of our current situation, but... Um, i don 't know Nick you and i 've been going back and forth about how it might work, and in a sense this this is a um, an experiment in how to make it work and mm-hmm. so uh, it seems like it might be able to work. I love wheels off, and i don 't want to lose it that said i 've got a list of projects that i 'm um, trying to keep myself occupied with um The biggest sort of ongoing one is to try and write a piece of long-form fiction, um, which this seemed like the perfect chance to, you know, no excuses. Uh, Go down to my office every day, and I'm working on the outline. Um, I haven't completely gone back to the drawing board on this uh, novel that I had been working on the last couple of years. I'm using big pieces of it, but turning it into something slightly different. Anyway, that's like a long, ongoing piece um, in the meantime, the 97s are mixing our new record. So every single day, I'm getting mixes, um, which we would be doing from afar anyway. So this is in kind of perfect timing. We we wrapped the day. These uh, stay-at-home orders took effect in New York. I flew home from Nashville, and we had just wrapped on our record. So Vance Powell in Nashville right now is mixing the album, and he's sending, or he's not even sending his mixes. It's a program he's got now where he sends us a link and we're listening to his desktop at his mixing studio so we're live so oh that's whenever, cool it's crazy so whenever he like solos up a vocal everything else goes away and i'm listening to what he's doing as he's doing it in real time and it's so cool so we just are now finally just doing the b-sides i think there will be one recall on a song that my guitar player had questions about the mix of and you know he's ornery so of course it would be him <laughs> So, yeah, so we're wrapping up the 97's album and then figuring out, like, the thing that I'm really actively working on right now is sequencing. Like, I love sequencing. Um, I have a strong feeling of what should be the first song and the last song and then figuring out in between those how you get from track one to track 12. That's like this jigsaw puzzle that I've been doing since I was, you know, whatever, 16 years old. And There's I definitely
2: some art and science to
1: that, too, right? Yeah, and it's tricky. And boy, I have heard crazy theories about the best way to sequence. Like there are, boy, I this this peer of mine a couple of years ago gave me this whole formula that he said was a secret that I was never allowed to share with anyone because <laughs> he'd gotten it from uh, Don Was, who got it from Paul Simon, and it's like this secret shared among. And and I'm like, okay, but it it involves. <laughs> It involves what key are the songs in on the album? What are the what's the key? And so I went, I did just to check that theory. I went back and figured out that on this old '97's record, every song is either in G or D. And I'm like, well, well, okay. that's out the window. <laughs> <laughs> this is track one. This is also track one.
2: This is yeah. track one as well. <laughs> there's going to be seven songs on the record, but there's only there's only two uh track titles track or you know track numbers track one and track two <laughs> um the- i the other thing I'm guessing that you've had to figure out during all this but but you've i think you've been doing it really well is all the staged stuff that you're doing, so you're doing these live concerts, and you went i feel like you went from zero to a hundred overnight because you were Saying, OK, I'm going to try this and I'm going to, you know, I'll try to figure this out. Now you're like, OK, Monday is Eastern time zone. You know, Wednesday is West Coast time zone. Fridays are we're doing it in Europe and all this thing. I was like, OK, he jumped in. He jumped in uh, all in on that. But tell me what that experience has been like learning, learning that
1: whole process. I can't believe I left that out. Really, that's like the most time-consuming, and uh, in a lot of ways, that's the reason I'm not doing as much on um, the the fiction writing as I should be. Like I've been sitting here for the last two hours relearning songs from my album from 2002, The Instigator, because tonight, as we record this, is Monday Memories, where I play an album in full, um, and then at the end I'll play maybe a you know one to three b-side outtake type songs so yeah when uh, i flew home from nashville on the 12th and f- figured out really quickly like this was going to be a long thing and um and you know immediately got the call that all of my solo gigs were canceled and um for march and april and now it's gone into may and june and and you know the foreseeable future and so the terror that I felt at the idea that I wasn't going to be able to provide for my family was enormous. And so I immediately started researching platforms. I don't do Facebook. I just can't do it. I've mm, never, insane. something about it. Yeah. Um, I get Instagram live. I've watched a lot of Jeff Tweedy doing Instagram live. And I think that there's a, it's pretty cool. Cause I actually like Instagram. I know it's owned by Facebook. So, but, um, The interface itself, it seems really easy and cool. Um, But I landed on this one called Stage It. I like it because um, you and I, Nick, we had discussed Nugs, and I thought that actually seemed like a really cool platform. The difference between Stage It and Nugs was that Stage It happens in real time and is not archived. And I like that because, in a way, what I like about the real shows is that they're an experience that mm-hmm. has an ephemeral quality in that they happen and then they go away. And so I really like that about Stage It. I like that it, it happens and then it's over. And if you missed it, then, you know, come to the next one. But while it's happening, there's a chat that happens live on the thing. And then a lot of people are, you know, using their other social media to communicate during the show And um, it's just like an experience that we are all in together in this moment. And so I've really enjoyed it. And it has ended up replacing my lost income, which who knew that that was going to happen? And it's weird because I've kind of become, in a lot of ways, one of the faces of um, musicians who've transitioned to the online platform You know, Wall Street Journal and Hits Magazine and the New York Daily News have all written these articles about me as the face of online performance, and I never thought I would be the face of online anything. Like, what? (laughs) This doesn't make sense to me, but here we are. That's awesome. That's awesome. What?
2: So, I guess it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago. My wife and I got uh, we bought a ticket for an online comedy show, right? And it was just people doing comedy. Uh, it, we'd gone to a show before and then we were on their mailing list and they said, Hey, even though, uh, we're in quarantine, we're still going to have the show cause they have a show in a different location every Saturday, but they did it online. And I said, that has to be, I think it's even harder for a comedian because of how Oof. much you play off the, sh- off the crowd and sitting in a room doing comedy. You've no idea what's landing, what's not all that sort of stuff. But equally, I would say equally as hard as, is playing a show with no audience I mean you know I've played tens of thousands of shows myself uh, maybe tens of thousands maybe an exaggeration but uh, (laughs) I was thinking about that I was like that's a lot of shows Um, but I'm thinking about performing without a crowd and how is it for you what is the what is the feeling that you're getting uh, you know when you're finished a song or like because I know that you draw off the audience as well what's the feeling that you're getting during a during a internet show
1: well, as I mentioned, there's that chat window that's mm-hmm. uh, open and I have I've had I've learned that I have to put a piece of paper in front of that because if I'm trying to read the chat as it goes by, which is fascinating because, you know, people will be, you know, they're in, in invariably because it is technology, somebody will be having a problem with their technology and then I get worried about them. But then another person's excited that they love the song and then I'm feeling good because they're it's it's almost as if. I'm standing on stage at a gig, and everyone's thought bubble has suddenly become <laughs> apparent and and I was legible. was that? <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god! And I'm looking out at this crowd, and I can see what everyone's <laughs> thinking at the moment as I'm singing. <laughs> and I was forgetting lyrics, and I was getting really upset. Like there were there have been a couple of nights where the technology failed me and or us, and um, and that is so incredibly stressful that feeling was a really really bad feeling and i you know i understand stage it was this company that for 10 years just kind of you know did all right and then overnight has had to deal with you know um becoming like the replacement for live nation or Mm -hmm. whatever it's just the what they've had to deal with is is giant and they're really like a mom and pop company it's um you know evan from evan and jaren former you know A rock star himself um, who owns the company and just a couple of people that work for him and they're really nice and they're working really hard But man that when the technology failed the stress that I felt was so Intense because already it's an awkward um, Transaction like Mm -hmm. I'm in my office and I'm looking at a tiny black dot and I'm singing into it and I'm pretending or imagining, maybe, because there is a reality to it, that that black dot connects me to all these people in their homes. And so I have to keep that in mind. Like, I am actually going somewhere with this thing that I'm doing. I'm not, it it isn't masturbatory, or it isn't any more masturbatory than it is normally. Um, in, in my office, in looking into that hole, because I'm actually going into their homes and their rooms, and I have to remind myself of this. But then when the technology starts to fail... That feeling of like loneliness and um, like terror that I'm gonna lose the ability to do um, my job, the thing that I was made to do, the thing that I feed my kids with, that terror becomes so real and so overwhelming. So thank God it's 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 working really well lately. And I but it has made I had to I had to cover up the chat room because I just can't I can't look at. Every single thought that goes scrolls across the feed, it's too much. Yeah,
2: I was thinking that the the thought bubble uh, analogy, I was thinking, man, it's like being able to read everyone's mind while they're at their while they're at your show would be that's a that would be a horrible thing. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, because we already do it anyway, right? Like right, you look right. at a crowd you see someone's eyes and or you see someone looking down at their phone and the, you read into that. And usually what I read into it, it tends to be more negative than it probably is in real life. Because, of right. course, people look at their phones. We do it all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, um, yeah, but now being able to read it in words is just too much. It's yeah. too much. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, thinking about
2: all this that, uh, that you've overcome – with this quarantine thing, I mean, you like you said, you make your money by by being on the road. Uh, but what I what I really hear out of all this is the persistence and and the dedication to your craft. And and you're the type of person that it doesn't matter what roadblocks are getting in your way, you're going to overcome those and you're going to figure out how to make it work, right? I mean, being no one no one uh, disagrees that being a musician in general as a career is a hard thing to do, but you've managed to do that for for decades now and. I want to rewind a little bit and go back to to how it all started for you. Like what was what was your genesis moment? Was there was there a point in your life when you said this is exactly what I'm meant to do or or you just knew
1: that it was going to happen for you? Yeah, I think I knew I think I knew that music was the thing. Like I really loved writing and reading and novels and novelists and you know Kurt Vonnegut and J D Salinger were big when I was in like 4th and 5th and 6th grade and and um and I and I kept thinking that literature offered something but it it didn't affect me the way music did and um boy, I go back to a moment where uh, David Bowie um, came through on the Serious Moonlight Tour. And I was dating at the time Debbie Loeb, who was the younger sister of Lisa Loeb, who later went on to become a famous musician herself. Lisa took Debbie and I to that uh, David Bowie concert. And we were sitting on the side of the arena closest to the stairs that he descended uh, for the break between the regular set and the encore. And while 17,000 people in Reunion Arena were chanting, you know, Bowie, Bowie. Um, he had an assistant who handed him a towel and a lit cigarette and a cocktail, and he mopped his brow and he took some drags off the cigarette and he listened to these people chant his name. And I just remember thinking, like, wow, that is a job. That's a really cool job. (laughs) I I want that job. And I think at the time, you know, as a 13-year-old kid who had just really started um, playing guitar and writing songs in earnest, I think I saw a through line to the 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 meager little thing that i was um you know creating in my bedroom to this giant thing that he was doing i saw like it's just a matter of degrees the difference between what i'm doing and what he's doing and i also saw that that i thought it would scratch the itch i had to like maybe write novels or maybe write mm-hmm. things that that felt more just um you know, word word-based and, and idea based. And I thought I could make the kind of music that would do all of that for me. And so starting at thirteen, I was really writing these heavily lyrical songs. And I and I just decided like, I can do this. Like you know, if why not me? You know, there's no reason but it's funny, I, I that's something I remember now, whenever I read interviews with someone else, I remember John Hamm said this in an interview. Um at some point he had that thought looking at all the people who are doing the thing that he aspired to do why not me you know Mm -hmm. why why would they be able to do it and i wouldn't be able to do it they don't know some magic secret that gives them insight that allows them to do something that's inaccessible to me so why not me
2: yeah i what do you think that is that that creates this sort of barrier like this self-inflicted barrier that when you know you see someone like if someone's out there and they look at someone like you or or bowie or david or 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 taylor swift or something like that and they're like oh i could i I, that could i could never do that what do you think that is do you think that's inferiority do you think it's you know what do you think that is
1: yes and that's the thing i still wrestle with and i think it's you know after doing years of therapy i think it really goes back to childhood i think a lot of us especially a lot of people that wind up being creative type people in in the arts had people in our lives that um maybe didn't appreciate us or told us that you know we weren't good enough or made us feel like we weren't good enough and so you wind up having carrying around this thing from childhood that is like a voice like it's the voice of you as a child saying and it's the opposite of why not me. It's the opposite of that sort of feeling of I can do anything. It's that feeling that other people really do have a secret. Right. <laughs> so I mean this is the opposite of what I just said but but and it was it was such a breakthrough moment when I when I realized that 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 little kid voice was wrong. Um but but I still deal with it all the time. I still deal with that feeling like you know, you walk into a party and you think, oh, I don't deserve to be at this party. Look how cool all these people are. And, and it's always kind of been a battle in my brain against that, you know, like the music industry is this really cool party full of people. God, I remember going to a, uh, an after party for a Grammys. I wasn't invited, much less nominated for the, for a Grammy, but around maybe 99, I went to an after party. And, Jeff Tweedy was there and I knew him and he was sweet. But, you know, um, a lot of people were there that I didn't know. And, and uh, you look over in the corner and there's Kid Rock and uh, um, who's the the Metallica drummer, the angry Lars. little guy? Not Lars. <laughs> Lars, angry little guy. <laughs> Lars and Kid Rock were over in the corner snorting blow. And I remember <laughs> somebody lean, leaned over and they go, look, you look at them snorting blow. Like, you know, that that's such high quality blow that it's probably good for you. And I remember (laughs) thinking like, that's not a thing. There is no cocaine that's good for you. (laughs) But, 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 it but it kind of goes with that feeling of like, they must know where to get the drugs that aren't bad for you. Like all these people know something that I don't know. And so, yeah, so it's funny that Hang on. I am. I mean, this is what I've had to tell myself. Hang on to that moment of epiphany where you know, like, they don't know something you don't know. They don't have some magic key that unlocks some door that you don't have access to. They're just like you. They just got lucky. I, I've gotten super lucky. M- you know, maybe Kid Rock got luckier, you know who knows i whatever it's all a matter of degrees isn't it right but yeah that feeling of not belonging is is a terrible feeling but but in a way i feel like maybe it's fueled me and it's definitely inspired a lot of songs of um you know it's that i think that each songwriter has a voice you know each writer has a voice and i think something there's something about my voice of that's like inadequate uh, always feeling like a fish out of water, always kind of feeling insecure. And I think it's an, it's definitely given me a lot of adrenaline as a writer. Like, okay, got to keep going, got to keep proving yourself hungry. Like here I am, 49 years old, making my 12th record with the old 97s. I've made eight solo albums. Like at a certain point you would think, like, isn't that enough? But it's not, it's never enough. And so maybe that insecurity um translates into hunger and maybe that hunger is what keeps me trying to write better songs even this deep into my career Mm -hmm. that makes sense i know that you always ask people sort of what
2: internally generated obstacles they deal with and then and then how they overcome them are these some of the the internal obstacles that you have this this, sort of the insecurity and and maybe feeling like you don't belong at the party
1: so to speak yeah yes yeah and there but i those internally generated obstacles are giant. And they and I think in a lot of ways they um I've been sober for five years this month. Basically, Congratulations. And thanks. And um but What was I the think- precipice behind that? Was that
2: was it just something you decided or do you did you feel like it was out of control or
1: it was a long time coming. Yeah. Um just uh I I felt like I was using um booze and weed to fix things more and more Mm -hmm. and also my kids were uh coming to an age where i mean and i know that kids are like aware of stuff from the you know little pictures big years but my kids were getting towards into the teenage years and i knew like oh man i really want to be present for them and i like i don't ever want them to have a problem and need me to help them and i'm not able to help them because i've you know gotten too wasted or I'm too hungover or and and that would have been the case if I mm. hadn't stopped so I know for me like the the you know those things Really, in a way, though, I feel like maybe the weed more than anything. But they were the they were what I did to sort of shut up those voices in my head that were telling me that I didn't belong or I wasn't good enough. And a lot of people that you know now that now I'm on the other side, I've I've found a lot of people. That's what they use them for. And I don't want anyone to feel like I'm judging them. I have a lot of friends that it's not a problem for, and they really just. You know, use it as a fun celebratory moment in the evening or when they're with friends or whatever. And that's fine. There's, that's, I, I'm, yeah.
2: There's an interesting concept about that. Uh, the way that you're saying it sort of silenced those voices because I've even known for myself, like, I'm, you know, I'm a social drinker. I don't drink a ton, but I'm a social drinker. But I do know that, like, if I've had a couple of drinks, the, the limiting beliefs and all of that just go away. And you're yeah. sort of like, why, why not me? Why can't I do these things? And I, and I can yeah. be great, and I can do all of these great things. And then you wake up in the morning and you go to work on those great things, and then those voices creep back into your head, and they say, "Wait yeah. a minute, who, who, what do you, who are you kidding? You can't do these things. We, you know, you can't do them."
1: Well, because you as a drummer and me as a singer or whatever, uh, it's a fundamentally insane transaction that we enter into every time we do our job because we're on a stage, we're the only one of three or four people facing that direction and hundreds of thousands of people are facing the other direction looking only at us. It's really weird. And it's so easy to get caught in that loop of like, oh my God, what if I let them down? Oh my God, what if I don't deserve all of these people's attention? Oh my God, what if I screw up and forget words or like for you? I mean, I, I, I can't even... I've been thrown behind the, the drum kit a few times on jams, which is so stupid. If you have me at one of your jams, don't put me behind the drum kit. But that feeling of like, if I stop, the whole thing falls apart. Yeah, like, The lead singer, if the lead singer walks off the stage, yeah, that's not going to be great. But the band could keep rocking until he comes back again. But if the drummer stops everything just falls apart. Anyway, so this transaction that we enter into when we do our jobs is really weird. And so I that's why I think it's so common for people in our profession to uh you know, to use drugs or alcohol or whatever to mm-hmm. to silence those voices, to make it to forget how weird it is. It took me a long time to realize god, I did not intend to talk about sobriety to realize that um When people talk about alcohol or whatever being a depressant, it's not that it makes you depressed. In fact, quite the opposite. It's that it depresses your feelings, like it tamps down any like extreme emotions. And it just kind of chills all those out so that you can be like, whoa, everything's great. You know, like all the things that you maybe should actually deal with through therapy or through like self-awareness, those things, they just get shoved down they get depressed, like, like a plunger going, and then, so they're down now and we can just have fun. So anyway, it took me a long time to figure out that that actually was what they mean when they say it's a depressant.
2: So how do you deal with those things? Because for me, you know, I've, I've always said, I'd love to get to that headspace without needing the alcohol, right? Like, how do you, how do you have this like unbridled enthusiasm and, and this, I, this thought process in your head that, I truly can do anything. How do you get to that space uh, without needing something to help
1: you get there? Boy, that's, that is the million dollar question, right? And so it takes a long time. Like once you, let's, you know, it's like you, you hear about people who are on a certain antidepressant and then uh, like it stops working or whatever. And and when you, when you have to figure out, it's like rejiggering your emotional Uh, chemistry. And so like for me, when I got sober and I had to figure out like how to write songs, yeah, I was super self-conscious, like, wait, wait, wait. So all this time I've just been like making people listen to me scream about my feelings. This, this seems like a bit much. (laughs) So it took a while, but you have to really, well, for me, the the main answer was therapy and like Mm -hmm. really kind of addressing the things the that made me feel unhappy, that made me feel um you know, like the sort of self hatred that that made me feel like I had to shut up the voices in my head. And so that, you know, I was lucky because I had a really great therapist and um and she and I worked together once a week for a long time and and I'm I'm lucky now that I don't feel like I have to do that every week, but I still check in with her and check in with myself a lot. So it's it's just that it's really you've got to kind of, you know, don't be afraid to do the work to be a healthy person in your brain and in your heart. That sounds like great
2: advice uh, that you know that you could give to yourself. Which br- brings me to the next uh, the next point is that one of the, one of my favorite questions that you ask people, and I think it's such an amazing question, is if you were to meet a twenty one year old version of yourself working in today's world what advice would you give them? So Rhett, what advice would
1: you give 21 year old you? Golly. Um, I, I love the answers that I get to this question and I feel like it's kind of one of my favorite moments. Um, you know, like Rob Thomas telling himself not to smoke. Um, I, I would also <laughs> tell <laughs> myself not to smoke. What did Fr- <laughs> what Fred Armisen said? Brush your teeth. Did he? <laughs> yes. Brush your teeth. Um, my problem, my biggest problem back then was that I was always so impatient. Um, you know what, I say that now, and and uh, and I realize that I also had a problem that I wasn't addressing, which was that I didn't like myself very much. So really, all that work I just talked about doing, it probably would have been great for me to do that work at 21 instead of at 45 or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um. So... I guess my main things would be just slow down. Don't feel so impatient. You've got a long life ahead of you. They're not going to kick you out of the music industry when you're 25. Calm down. Take a deep breath. Make sure that the things you do are as good as they can be because, you know, it's not as as much of a rush as you think it is. But the other thing would be um, be really honest with yourself about whether or not you are loving yourself well, because, um, it's really easy to just power through and accept, uh, the violence that we do on ourselves, you know, accept the, um, the sort of disrespect that we show ourselves. And I, I would love if I could go back to those younger years and not put myself in positions where I was with people that didn't treat me lovingly or where I treated myself as if I were trying to, you know, slowly yet methodically commit suicide with all the, you know, cigarettes and booze and all the stuff that I was doing. It was just like so self-destructive. And it's easy to idealize that. And it's easy to think that that's just part of being young and maybe it is and god knows i wrote enough songs about um those years and how much fun they were and in a way they really were fun but i wonder if they would have been more fun if i had loved myself better and um respected myself more
2: i think that's great <laughs> advice so again? i publicly i feel like i should tell you this because as as someone on the outside you know you're you're uh you're putting this podcast out there, but we've been working on this together for, for quite some time now. And I know that the audience loves it and I myself love it as well. Uh, but I should publicly tell you that one, it's been a pleasure working with you, but also uh hearing this story and, and hearing how you've, you've, made these you know, made these adjustments, put the work in to to make these changes. Uh, I applaud you for that. so I think that you should be publicly congratulated for that because I know that that is extremely hard to do and uh, and you know I, i'm just i'm I'm really, really proud of you and and really
1: fortunate to have been working on this project with you for so long. Man, thank you so much, Nick. And you've done a great job. I hope people don't think it's narcissistic that we did it like this. But, man, I've really enjoyed getting to talk about these things. And you're a great interviewer. Well, thank you, man. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, As the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all.